This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most, my beautiful audience all over the world. I am so honored to sit in this seat get to talk to the most beautiful people around the world, and also to have you, the listeners, write in and share stories and guest suggestions. I was especially inspired today because I have been aware of this uh, beautiful soul's work for a long time because I spent a lot of time in Boston and New England and couldn't have been happier when uh, his publicist, Bonnie Rice, reached out And in terms of this book called Rough Sleepers, which uh, was written by author Tracy Kidder. And our guest uh, launched the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program back in 84. I can't believe it's almost 40 years. And it, uh, to just ensure comprehensive, high-quality care for individuals and families experiencing homelessness. Now there's like 30-plus clinics. I know they have a van. They're able to touch 10,000-plus lives a year. And there's a link on the page to this program. If you want to support it, I would highly, highly encourage you to do that and also to buy the book. It's an honor to finally welcome to the family, Dr. Jim O'Connell. Thanks for coming on. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. You're doing such beautiful work in the world. It's an honor to sit with you. I was wondering, too, I know you grew up in Newport, and you grew up in a loving family. What kind of impact did that have on you and the trajectory of your life? What kind of difference did that make? You know, I think as I, I look back, I'm starting to realize that it's made more of a difference than I ever gave it credit for. <laughs> I'm one of, you know, one of six kids, you know, and my dad was, um, you know, we're all part of that kind of extended Irish Catholic network in Newport, which is sort of most of the natives there. Um, we grew up, you know, in Newport, there's no north, south, east or west. There's different parishes, sort of like Dorchester and Boston. So my dad, you know, never got out of high school, did, um, you know, was in uh, in the Pacific Theater during World War II for many years. Uh, and then, uh, and my mom had, you know, went to college and actually was one of the first women in her family to go to college. So I grew up in, in an extremely loving family where education was cherished. I think uh, life around the parish was cherished. Um, uh, and, you know, we had, you know, with six kids, we took care of one another. So I, I was blessed. I don't think we had any money, but th that didn't seem to be, didn't matter much. And I think the most um, relevant thing, though, for my own life is that, you know, we had to start, we didn't have money. So we started working. I remember working in a restaurant beginning when I was 11. Um, you know, we learned to, we were all contributing to the, to the till to keep everything going. And my mother suffered from really, um, really terrible bipolar illness. And she was many times by just severe disabling depression. So we learned to tiptoe around my mother's illness when I was growing up. And I think that gave us a sense of, of two things. One of the uncertainty of not knowing when it may happen. And two of just taking care of everybody so that, you know, we would minimize the harm and uh, make sure we took good care of her. Was there any sense of, oh, uh, you should give back and do service? Was that part of the culture or did that just evolve later as you started to move in these directions? Oh, no, it was part of the, you know, that was drummed into us from an early age. You know, both my mom and dad, um, you know, I think they they were what I would call real social justice Catholics. And what they were really most concerned about is 
one were we happy and two were we giving back to others and i think that was it all the rest fell apart so they didn't really care what our job was you know what our station in life was just as long as we were would be giving back what inspired you to get into medicine where did that fire inside start and was there someone who had an impact on you or you just got curious and went in that direction no, it's, you know, it's like like so many of the things in my life, uh, well, it was kind of serendipity at the most unexpected of times. Um, and what, uh, you know, I was a philosophy major and a theology major in college, and I graduated, you know, I went to college during the 60s, late 60s, graduated the year of Kent State. So I, you know, I was, I was in the middle of all that turmoil, um, not at all sure what I wanted to do with my life, but sure that I didn't want to sort of do anything too conventional, at least not at that time. And I remember I went to, you know, graduate school in, in theology for a couple of years over in Cambridge. Then I taught high school for a couple of years out in Honolulu, um, ran a restaurant for a year, you know, did the things that, you know, philosopher, philosophy majors do. I attended bar, you know, drove cabs, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was belatedly when I was about 26 or 27, uh, I was visiting some of my old Cambridge friends in the Isle of Man, which is in the middle of the Irish Sea. And uh, they have a motorcycle race here. It's a Grand Prix motorcycle race around the island. It's done right on the roads in the island. It's quite extraordinary. Lots of people come. And I happened to be in the car with my friend behind a motorcycle with a with one off the road. And the man who was on the motorcycle which sort of broke his leg, literally broke it in half. And I had to sit with him. Well, my friends went on to get the volunteer fire department to come get him. And I remember this was a man from Manchester. He grew up in really hard scrabble times. And I was sitting there trying hard not to look at the broken leg because it made me too queasy, but trying to have a conversation with him where we both were trying to distract ourselves from what was really going on. And we had this remarkable conversation bridging two completely different worlds. And I started thinking, for the first time in my life, that maybe I'd like to know how to fix that leg so I can be present for these kinds of conversations. And that was my, this sounds really silly, but that's when I decided I wanted to go to medical school. I don't know if you believe in destiny, but it sounds like a little destiny mixed in there. Uh, yeah, I, I try not to believe in destiny, but I think I've been, I think I've been victim of destiny for quite a while. <laughs> you had your ideas and then I'll say God had God's ideas and Hopefully it worked out more along those lines. And even the way you ended up with this uh, this homelessness involvement in advocacy was because the head of the medical school, right, said, hey, here's I have something for you you might want to do. But when the head of the medical school says it, it's sort of a fait accompli, right? Isn't that how it started? Yeah, all all questions are rhetorical when you go into it. It was actually my chief of medicine at Mass General Hospital who did that. It was, you know, I had already, my I had my career all planned out. Um, I wanted to study, I wanted to become a cancer specialist, an oncologist. Um, and he called me in. His name is Dr. John Potts. He was one of the most one of the most wonderful people in the world and a mentor of mine. And another doctor named Tom Durant, who was really the community person at the hospital who had done things like started all the um, Thai refugee camps for USAID. But the two of them called me in and said there was a grant being given to the mayor of Boston to take care of homeless people, try to organize the care so that they would be more integrated into the mainstream. And so they asked me if I would do it for a year. You know, and I, I heard it the way they said it was, uh, this was my, I had to do this. So once again, there was a little bit of serendipity smacking me in the face. Um, and so I said, yes, I do it. 
mostly because I valued my career. I didn't want to go against that. Um, but I thought, you know, Gal, this is this would be really wonderful. I can give back, you know, do give back again. This is what I really wanted to do. So um, I thought it'd be my year of doing a good work, giving back to, you know, solve my late 60s conscience or whatever that was. So I did it. I said I'd do it for a year. And they delayed my fellowship for a year and all was well, I thought. <laughs> How did the gravitational pull and why keep you there? Oh, I love the way you say that because it does, in fact, feel like there was gravitational pull despite my trying to jump past it. Um, so what happened is, I, you know, I went from, you know, the the tertiary care hospital setting, you know, where I was running an ICU as a senior resident, you know, and doing all this kind of stuff that really appealed to me. It was high tech. I had spent four years in medical school, three years in residency. And, you know, and I, I was fancying myself as I've, I've done it. I'm there. I'm good. Um, and so I went down the street six blocks and, was started in a shelter clinic. It was Pine Street Inn, which is this remarkable shelter. It's New England's oldest and largest shelter, was at the time. And um, I figured, how hard can doing medicine in a shelter do after all the stuff I've been doing? And um, I learned from the nurses there, who were these just remarkably wonderful, strong, mostly women. Um, they um, quickly let me know how how poorly I had been trained in the care of poor people and that uh, I needed to listen to them. And I can remember thinking after um, being asked to soak feet for the first two months I was there that I had clearly made the wrong decision, um, but I got caught by it all. There was something about, you know, the tragedy of homelessness, you know, the appalling situation that people were living in. Almost no one by their own um, desire, but all because of and what I would now think of as structural failures in so many of the sectors of our society. Um, and uh, I got to know them as, you know, slowly over time. And getting to know them was really to understand what, you know, what, you know, first of all, what a terrible hand they had been dealt in life. And second, um, to sort of see the courage with which they faced each day when they had literally nothing, no money, you know, no hope no um, no sense of a future. And so being invited into their lives uh, kind of captured me. I know there's a lot of reasons for it. How big uh, was the policy of mainstreaming, mainstreaming people back from the mental health care facilities back in the 80s? I think that was Reagan's idea, her cronies. That was just like a tidal wave. We saw a massive increase in homelessness. And then you also had people coming back from the Vietnam War in other wars. But was mainstreaming a big part of the problem back then? Uh, it was with a, you know, a slight caveat. So the, the deinstitutionalization that we went through in the 60s, when we basically closed most of the mental health hospitals, which by the way, were poorly funded and generally awful places to be at a time when we didn't have very good medications for people who were suffering from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, and um, when they were let go of from the hospitals, the thought would be we would have great community services that could take care of them and give them reasonable lives rather than have them in the, you know, in these um, terrible wards of back wards of uh, hospitals. And the problem, of course, as everybody knows, that was exactly the right thing to do. It was, you know, it was it was improve a chance to improve the lives of these very poor and unfortunate people. But we never really funded the community resources to take care of the hospital. But 
interestingly, the twist here is that in those days, most of those folks, as far as I can tell, at least in the big cities, went and stayed in flop houses, rooming houses, places where you can spend a dollar to five dollars a night and have a place to stay. And they had, you know, social security checks that covered that for them. And it wasn't until we, um, the, the second, I th think, which is often missed, the second um, hit to the, all of this was that all of those rooming houses, certainly in Boston and many other major cities, they became victim of gentrification, where those were in places that used to be poor areas like the south end of Boston, and then all of a sudden became very desirable, very rich. And then that was what happened in the late 70s, early 80s. And then those people came from the those very, very low you know, low threshold places and came into the shelters. By the time I was starting at Pine Street Inn, Pine Street Inn was very appropriately saying um, and accurately saying that they were de facto the largest mental health facility in the state of Massachusetts. And it was a source of great concern for all of us. And also now, because of the price and inflation, the stagnation of wages since like 1980, there are people in cities who have a job or two who sleep in their cars or are homeless. They're not lazy. They're not mentally ill teachers, different people in, in different fields. And I met some who are homeless. They have no issue. I mean, they have no more issues more than I do or someone else. That's a big thing now, isn't it, Jim? It is a very big thing, Paul. And it's, 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 you know, it's really worrisome because not only is, you know, the income gap grown enormously in these last 30 years that I've known. But the the rents have gone way up. The availability of afford affordable housing is getting vanishingly rare, except with, I know the city of Boston is working very hard as well as many other cities now. But I, I the way I started to think of it is, if you think of two, a couple, two people working 40 hours a week at minimum wage, um, they can't afford at this time in, in space, a two bedroom apartment in Boston. And so there you have hardworking people who used to be able to live in one of the neighborhoods with, you know, with their own place, can't do that anymore. And so when you get into a situation like that, you know that we are on the precipice of, uh, you know, a real upcoming disaster. And look at the way you grew up, six kids, your mom and dad, you had a roof, right? Oh, yeah. And we never, you know, we never thought of, we had a, you know, we were in a house, we were, you know, and um I think we just never realized we didn't have much money because we had all the things you need. You know, we had friends, we had a loving family home and we, you know, there was, life was kind of bustling, but what happened to that? I think I struggle with that all the time now, you know, the dissolution of all that, you know, all the things that kept everybody bolstered um, has really taken a toll. And it, to me, everywhere I look, I see so much trauma. Trauma on the streets, trauma in relationships, trauma inside all of us, trauma. I feel like the system we have grown into, this win-at-any-cost capitalism, healthcare for few, you name it, this is a very traumatic system. We don't have a lot of resources. We try to encourage rugged individualism instead of community, which is what we all need. Now you add the social media aspects, it, environmental things, just massive amounts of trauma. What role does trauma play in what you see with the people you deal with? We've, we've had a wonderful psychiatrist on our team had for about 
10 years. He's recently retired. His name was Jim Bonner, and he's really, he's lived down on the Cape now. But Jim was a seasoned psychiatrist who came and started working full-time on the streets with us. And one of the things he noticed within the first few months of working with us is the just the incredible prevalence of trauma, histories of trauma, and virtually everyone, not only women, but even the men. And he would tell you that anywhere from 70 to 90% of the people who live long-term on the streets have, have been through what is essentially unspeakable trauma as children, sometimes physical, sometimes sexual, sometimes emotional, but the deprivation um, is quite extraordinary. And I think, um, you know, I didn't believe that at first. I thought, come on, you know, I grew up in a, we were poor, but there wasn't a lot of trauma in my life. But as I've spoken to and gotten to know more and more of the people who really been on the streets for a long time or in the shelters for a long time, um, their histories are really staggeringly full mm -hmm. of trauma and real deprivation and poverty and racism, all the things that you can imagine. So they've been, you know, they've just suffered terrible, terrible hits as children that then almost guarantee that they're going to end up unable to function in a society like ours, which can be so cruel and exacting. When I am in big cities or anywhere and I see people on the street, I don't see it as a failure on their part. I see it more as a collective failure. Is that overly simplistic? I don't think so. I, I you know, I've evolved as... <laughs> I remember when I first started in 1985, you know, when I first started doing clinical stuff, I thought I, you know, I thought I knew what this homeless problem was all about. We could fix it in a few years. In fact, our grant was a four-year grant from the Robert Johnson Foundation. And we all thought at the time we were addressing an emergency problem that would go get fixed in the next four years. But over time, you know, I think if there's anything we've learned, it's that homelessness is way more complicated than we ever had anticipated. The people who are caught in homelessness, you know, are eclectic and varied. You know, it's families, it's veterans of, you know, foreign wars and other things. It's, you know, elderly people, it's immigrants and uh, adolescents who have run away. You know, it's just an entirely eclectic group of people. So it's not there's no generalization that tends to work. And I was trying hard to find the generalization that would solve this problem. Um, but no, I think it is, it, it, I would be I would be dishonest if I didn't say I've only met less than a handful of people in my almost 40 years who I would say were on the streets or in the shelters by their own volition. Everyone else, as you get to know their story, and sometimes it takes years to get to know their story, but as you get to know it, um, the um, the odds against them were overwhelming. Yeah, because I know we can't solve all suffering in the third dimensional realm. Even the Buddha came up with that. I'm just playing games here. If the 80% of what we spend on the defense budget, which is about a trillion dollars, give or take, if we had seven, 800 billion, say 600 even a year, what kind of dent could we make in society in terms of services, education, healthcare? support counseling couldn't fix everything that's impossible but i've got to i gotta believe it would be like the wizard of oz when it went from black and white to color oh no you're teasing me a little bit here paul with a this is a you know sort of a a question we often do and I, you know i've i've taken um and if you forgive me for this but i've started to think of homelessness the way i've described it most often now is if you uh, think of homelessness as a prism that you hold up to society, what you will see refracted 
uh, the weaknesses in so many of our sectors, in our healthcare sector, our mental health sector, public health sector, but especially in our you know, justice system, in our labor system, um, and then in our welfare and education system. And as I, you know, as I parse it back, I realize it would take a lot to solve, to solve homelessness and end it permanently. We're going to have to address all of those weaknesses. There's no question in my mind. But if I had to pick a few to start with, with those billions, I would probably start with the education system. Because I think of on the streets, for example, about 25% of the men we see on the streets cannot read or write. So you know that somewhere back when they were in first, second, and third grade, they had learning disabilities, cognitive disabilities, developmental disabilities that were just never addressed because they were in school systems that didn't have the capacity to do that. And the result of that is homelessness 20 and 30 years later. So I would fix the schools. I would make you know, I would make the schools our highest priority. Let's fix the schools, address the problems that kids see when they're in school. And that would make, I think, a huge dent in homelessness 20 years from now. And since we still have hundreds of billions laying around, I'd say, okay, Jim, but what if we also add everybody has a, a roof, at least here in America, running water and hot meal and something nutritious to eat. And if you need health care, you can have that too. Maybe you can't go get plastic surgery. So basically now we're educating. We have a roof, something to eat. If you need healthcare, great. We have pretty good mass transit. If you need to get around, you don't need a car. We'd probably put a good dent in things, right? And wouldn't people just, wouldn't society as a whole function better? Absolutely. And I, you know, I'm definitely preaching to the choir here. I, uh, you know, I, I think of, first of all, it's appalling that we don't have enough housing for everybody in the country. There, it should be a basic right to everybody to have a decent roof above your head with enough food. And that I think is something we ought to be able to do as a society, right? But that said, we probably need an awful lot more than just the housing. We can, we'll never solve it without the housing. So that's the paramount thing. But I think a lot of folks need people that are going to recognize their developmental disabilities and take care of them. And people that are going to take care of their health needs or their, their mental health needs. And so those services that you really need to help people stay safe and, and, um, and, and uh, stable in their housing also need to be provided. So I'm, um, I'm a sort of big believer. I, I, I want to stand up, make sure everyone understands we will never, ever solve this problem without, without enough affordable housing. Um, but then for many of the people who've been chronically out there, who've been so, um, so wounded by the societal hits that they've had, those are the folks who are going to still need and want care in all sorts of dimensions. And we have to provide that if we expect them to maintain housing. And I can give you lots of examples of that, but it's not surprising. We have, for example, um, you know, if, as we've watched people that have been on the streets for 20 or 25 years, and they now are able to get into a lot of creative stuff done by many people like Pine Street Inn and Homestart and um, and the city of Boston, they get into housing. Um, and what we find is when they get into housing, several things become really evident. One is that somebody's skills on the street, which are often finely honed and really good, are absolutely useless when they get into an apartment. And that is, that's like taking away all your limited skills. And then once they're in the apartment, they realize how lonely they are. And we don't do a good job at providing community around them. We don't do a good job of 
making sure they have things to do, work, you know, sheltered work, whatever it is that can give them some sense of hope and a sense of purpose. And without that, people tend to drift back into homelessness. So it's a, the challenge is still there. I'll tell you one example. I'm sorry to talk so much here, but this, you've hit a nerve. Um, but, you know, we have, um, I should have mentioned this, we have in our program, we have many homeless people on our board of directors. And um, which has been one of the best things ever. And they, you know, we have to vet anything we're going to do through these pretty rigorous and, uh, you know, and experienced homeless people. And um, one of them, when he, our vice chair, when he got into housing after 30 years in the streets, he was placed in a really nice single um, one bedroom apartment. I think it was out in Hyde Park. He lives in downtown Boston or had been in. And when he got there, he could not sleep because it was too quiet. And I remember him, you know, moaning about that, said, I can't sleep, it's too quiet. And unlike what most of us want, we want quiet to sleep. So he came down to our offices, which are right across from the emergency room at Boston Medical Center. And he taped the sounds of the sirens coming, the police cars going by, the people yelling, people walking by. And that tape is what he takes home and he plays at night to go to sleep. And you realize how hard that adjustment is. Just think of that. Um, and then he also it actually got together with several other uh, formerly homeless people who are housed and they put together a video to warn them about the loneliness and the depression that comes when you finally, after all these years looking for housing, you finally get there and realize there's a whole lot of challenges still ahead, that the answer is not completely done. And so that video has been, re has been he did that with the National uh, Consumer Advisory Board. It goes around the country to homeless people and agencies around so that they can get a sense of what it's like when you move into housing. And who would have thought that? I would have thought, what joy, you finally get into housing, it's going to be great. Shows everything's comfort for the brain. Do you remember in prison, people when they get out, they have a harder time outside than, and not, that's a lot of the reason why they go back. It's just what you're used to, good or bad. And I was thinking too, that if we supply all those services we talked about a few minutes ago, you and I, 15, 20 years later, we go, oh my God, incarceration rates are down 90%. We're saving a fortune. You know, that would be one of the other offshoots of all of the things you're talking about with this stuff, right? So uh, how has it changed you to work in this way? How, you've been at it almost 40 years. I'm sure it had a very transformational inner impact on you and the way you move through the world. Is there any way to articulate that? I know it's a hard question. No, it is a hard question. And, um, you know, as I get to my tender age, as I'm coming up here, um, you know, I'm, I think about this a lot. What I can certainly say is that this, you know, I'm an accidental tourist in this world. I thought I would do it only a year. I found that after one year, it was so complicated, and um, we were in the throes of a, of, of a huge epidemic of multi-drug tuberculosis. The AIDS epidemic was becoming more and more prevalent throughout the homeless community, and we were awash in complicated um, medical and social situations. And I was both fascinated and overwhelmed. And I said, oh, I need another year to just get my feet on the ground. And I think by that time, by the end of the second year, I knew so many people and I felt so attached to them and realized that, you know, I was lucky because as a doctor, they hadn't, many of them hadn't had a doctor in their entire lives. And so they were attached to me. And I also all of a sudden found, you know, I'm getting more out of this than they are. This is my, it's becoming my world. I like to tell people for years, I was a bartender and I feel like it's just an evolution of bartending, you know? <laughs> 
that you know you the job is to listen and to try to understand and if you don't like listening and trying to understand then those nights as bartending could be very long <laughs> so um uh, uh, listening to the stories of people becomes compelling at the same time and this is where i have to really be careful at the same time you know you feel a growing outrage about any society like my own that would allow people to live in these circumstances especially a, a society with so much money and so much wealth and so so many options why we let the poorest of the poor live in the shelters or on the streets just is beyond me that's the question to me that's the core of so much of it I wonder, is it a design flaw in humanity? Now, it can't be all of us because I'm talking to you. And also, there's so many good people. It feels like if we define success as collective thriving, while you're going to always lose a few in the herd, while we have the most billionaires, the way I look at the culture, we're not winning, we're losing. And then you know, if we destroy the environment enough or it kills us off, of course, the earth will bounce back with joy and glee. I don't know. I just feel like our values are skewed and that one of the canaries in the coal mine are all these people on the streets, one of the big ones, and also the, the teen and the child depression. And the fact that two out of three of these people are on pharmaceuticals just so they can get through the world. I mean, not on the streets, in the boardroom. I feel like that fundamentally... This isn't working no matter how much we try to gloss it up or put lipstick on the pig or the, the glowing profiles on in the media owned by the same people. It's not working. And I would be happy to debate that question with anyone who thinks it is. And I say that because you can't fix anything unless like you and you know as a physician, you make the correct diagnosis. Oh, uh, this is another nerve you're hitting. <laughs> that... Um... You know, there are times, you know, I, when I look back, you know, and we, we, we now have this, you know, I, I work with a bunch of unbelievably wonderful and mostly young doctors and nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, social workers, um, who, have, who are really dedicating their lives to take care of this group of people, um, you know, at much less money than they ought to be making and with much less prestige than they deserve. Um, but there's something compelling about taking care of people who so desperately need and want us and who have such complicated problems. So then I step back and say, so what have we, what's, what's happened? What have we changed over all this time? And what's our success? You know, and there are nights when I think, man, you know, all this has been gotten us nowhere. Homelessness is worse now than it was in 1985. Um, you know, people are still suffering. I don't see society changing a whole lot of what we really had hoped they'd change. And um, in those moments of discouragement, um, I think what emerges, and I have to be careful how I say this because I don't want to, you know, sound, uh, I don't know, academic or something here, but I think what emerges is that what really drives us and really compels us is the privilege of being invited into the lives of these people who have suffered far more than anything I could ever imagine. And then that they're trusting us to understand them, you know, be their doctors, be their care providers. Um, and to stand with them, to stick with them, whether it's dark or light, just be there for them and minimize suffering whenever we can. Um, even though we know we're not changing the big trajectory of society. So trying to hold those two, those two things um, at the same time, which are almost paradoxical, um, I think has been really important for us because I think our success, if I see it, is, you know, we've been there. We've been 
You know, we've been part of these people's lives. They've invited us in, and that is a privilege. And, um, you know, and I love my life as a doctor. I think it's, you know, fabulous. So I have, you know, people who are really sick and really need us, and we have a whole lot to offer, but we haven't really changed homelessness as a societal problem. Do you think you'll ever be able to walk away? Or are they going to have to carry out? Another interesting and maybe um, painful question right now. So it turns out I would I never thought in my life of walking away. It just was part of what I did. I think I early on made what I what I think is a classic mistake. You know, it was so early. We we're trying to develop this program. We used to work 90, 100, even more hours per week. And it was always, you know, to get to get through the next each whatever crisis it was. So, you know, for many, many years, this was there was no work-life balance at all. We just did it. Um, and I think as we've been able to get more and more folks to come on board and dedicate themselves to this, I'm I'm in the luxury position now of having lots of colleagues who are, you know, younger, brighter, you know, more energetic than I am. And then along comes COVID. And COVID showed up and I happened to get, um, I have to get this kind of funny rheumatological illness and I had to get on immunosuppressing drugs right as I was getting into my 70s and this potentially deadly illness shows up. And while I had been used to just running into the fires all my life, I was never frightened of any of that. I had to step back now and, um, and do much more administrative stuff and away from the front lines for the first time ever. Um, and there's a lot of lessons I could talk to you about from that. But one of the most poignant was that I realized that I was redundant in my own program, you know, our own program, um, that people rose to the occasion. We had these just phenomenal response by so many of our doctors. You know, we had, you know, we had tents set up for, you know, making sure people had places to isolate. But, you know, our program ran the 500 beds that opened up in the Boston Convention Center to take care of homeless people with COVID. You know, we were, you know, just all flat out. And I was stunned by the the commitment and the excellence and the skill of our clinicians. And so while I took great comfort in saying, boy, I'm redundant, it's also scary to say they don't need me anymore. So that was my first ever glimpse that maybe I could walk away. If not walk away, I could slow down. And I've been a little, struggling a little bit with that. I'm going to be 75 this week, so or next week. And um you know, and I want to say, you know, how much, there are a few books I want to read, maybe a few trips I want to take that I've never done. So that is creeping into my thoughts, the fact that maybe I should at some point slow down. Sorry for such a long and winding answer. <laughs> no, keep the answers long. That's the whole point of the show. It's all things, I'm long-winded. It doesn't matter. No, we want in depth, but it'll go on long after we're both gone. Hopefully not, but I think it will. Or there'll be some other challenge. I guess there comes a time where you take stock and you've done a lot, and then it's okay to go read the book, take a nap, and uh, maybe back it off. But it's very hard, isn't it? Because the need is so strong, and your desire to serve is so beautiful, and you get more out of it than like everyone who serves says. But it's at some point, I guess you have to, but maybe not. A lot of some of our most famous humanitarians, you know, they went right to the end. No, I think about that a lot. And, um, uh, you know, I think I had always assumed I would do the same thing. You know, I'd still do this when I was 95, if I were lucky to be alive at that time. Um, but I think, I've, I think I've, um, you know, I really, there's a couple things to mention here. I remember Barbara McGinnis, who is the nurse that taught me everything. 
first got there, remarkable human being. Um, and she was like, um, she was an old Catholic worker, as so many of the nurses were at Pine Street, who um, was also like a third order Franciscan, you know, so she often wore sandals and stuff like that. But her approach was basically like my parents' old approach of social justice. Um, and I can remember when I was overwhelmed of working in the shelter and trying to figure out how do we take care of this this TB epidemic, it's like out of control. And how do we, you know, everybody was dying of AIDS because we had no treatment for it. Um, and I remember, uh, you know, someone asked Barbara, you know, what's the solution to all this? <laughs> and I was working in the same the clinic room as Barbara, and she looked at the guy and she said, don't ask me that. She said, I'm way too busy to even think about it. <laughs> um, and at first that sounded a little jarring. I've started to realize what she meant, you know, that when I step back from this societal problem of homelessness, I know that we have to, we have to address it. We have to look at the soul of our society and, you know, figure out who we are. But in this interesting and maybe almost upside down way, um, that's down the line somewhere. In the meantime, all these people are sick and dying in front of us. And our job, like Barbara used to say, is to take care of them. And so I'm trying to sort of ease back and realize there's two issues here. One is how do you fix a problem? And then the other one is how do you take care of these millions of people who are currently caught in this problem? So it's like the earthquake happened. We have to take care of those who have been in it. At the same time, we fix the infrastructure that caught, that allowed an earthquake to be so devastating. So the, that I don't think is often appreciated when we talk about homelessness. I think there's two things you want to think about. How do you take care of those and be sympathetic to those who basically, as we've said, through no fault of their own are out there? And then at the same time, how do we also fix, get enough housing, get enough services and fix the problem? Um, and I think that's a both and, not an either or. How important is it for everyone listening when we encounter someone like who is homeless to not look away, to make eye contact, to acknowledge them and their humanity, to be kind, not be frightened. And if only we give them a minute or two of our time, that can be huge. And again, it changes you a lot. I had an experience in New York City. The last time I was there, I was cutting through um, Times Square on my way back from a nice dinner, blah, blah, blah. And there was a guy standing out in front with this cart and wanted some money. And I said, sure. And I said, are you hungry? And he said, yeah, I'm really hungry. So I said, what do you want? And then we went into the place there. He picked a spot and we sat down, bought a bunch of food. He was going to save for a couple of days. I got to be honest, the guy was really intelligent, brilliant. He'd had some bad breaks. And I sat there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I, it was the best part of my evening, actually, the nice dinner was paled in comparison to the hour I spent with him. And not everyone can do that. But Jim, if we just give them a little bit of dignity, as much as the time affords, doesn't that have, a, I guess, as good an impact as anything? Give them the money too, I think. I know it's controversial. Or if, give them some food. But I, I feel like if we just can also treat them like a human being, that's a better gift almost than almost anything else. Once you get the primal needs met. The more the more I have thought about that, the more I've learned about it, particularly in talking to our the, the homeless folks who we've gotten to know well on our board of directors. I think acknowledging and Barbara McGinnis said this right from the very first day I got there. I remember walking down the alleyway and everybody asked me for money and stuff, and I was like, one, I didn't have any money, and two, 
what, what do you do? And Barbara Jim simply said, look, don't worry about some money's, you know, we can talk about should you give money or not? That's another thing. But she said, whenever you see somebody, she, said, she would say, the most important thing to do is look them in the eye and acknowledge them. Even if you can say, no, I'm sorry, I don't have any money today, but just acknowledge them. And then she would always encourage, she said, and if it's, she would tell people, if it's someone you see on your daily walk to work or something, say hello to them each day, strike up a conversation over time. And she said, and that's what people are desperately looking for. They don't want to be invisible and they really want to be acknowledged as like us. They want to be part of us. They don't want to be other than. And I think that just that alone, people would sort of buy into that. Um, I think it would change, remarkably change our societal attitudes toward homeless people because you'll get to know them a little bit. The um, I remember the, you know, the issue about money, uh, you know, I've taken a lot of criticism for. I never didn't know what to do about giving money, but I remember Barbara McGinnis would ask me for money to give to somebody and Kip Tiernan, who was the founder of Rosie's Place, this fierce and wonderful advocate. Um, uh, would I remember the first time she was on our board of directors early on, and first time I saw her in the clinic, she went, you know, goes, Jeb, give me five bucks, and I had to give her five bucks so she could give it to someone. And I'm like, I grew up in a world where, you know, when people these these remember homeless people have no money; they are poor in general. Somebody did so the average they have is about three dollars a day. That's what they live on, and there are no reserves. So when you think of that, then. You know, giving them a dollar or giving them, you know, something didn't seem quite so awful. Um, but nonetheless, I got trained in a world where there, that boundary kind of got blurred. Um, but <clears throat> I also, um, you know, as, you know, I guess as time has come on, I've, I've learned things like, here's a simple observation. So, you know, I work on Pine Street Inn has this remarkable van that was funded by the Department of Public Health of Massachusetts back in 1980s, the winter of 86, when we started to all realize that the people who were dying were those who were not coming into Boston shelters. And about 95% of everybody who's homeless in Boston, families and adults, are in a shelter. And the other five or less percent of those people that just, even though there's a bed for them, they're for complicated reasons, they stay outside. Um, and they will never let you say, I can't ask them, like, why are you choosing to be outside? They will always throw that back at you and say, I'm not choosing to be outside. I'm choosing not to be in a, in a place with 500 other people to sleep or in a place where I can't go with my partner um, or in a place as, uh, you know, I, I don't know if Tracy might have mentioned this, but I'll never forget. I had my comeuppance when I was minus five or minus 10 degrees one night. We're out at two in the morning. I was trying to get this guy who's under a, a bridge near Storage Drive by the river trying to get him to come in because he was going to freeze. And he looked at me and said, Doc, geez, you got to understand. He said, when I go into, into Pine Street Inn, he said, I can't tell which voices are mine. He said, when I stay here under the bridge, I know they're my voices and I can handle them. And I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to ask judge people in any way about whether they're coming in or not. Um, but um, we also learned that, you know, <laughs> we had a Robin Glazer, who is a, a lawyer for the crafts, uh, came out with some patriots one time. And that's always a, that's always such a joy for homeless people. You'd be amazed at the power our, our great athletes have in, you know, looking over this population. They adore them. You'd be surprised that, you know, people on the street love the Bruins. They love the Celtics. They love the Patriots. And so any any way to uh, involve them has always been wonderful. And Robin has always had the Patriots come out on the streets. But she started giving us Dunkin' Donuts cards. And I kind of laughed at it at first. But a Dunkin' Donuts card, if you think about it, to give to somebody. And it's, you know, like a $5 card. 
I guess inflation is going to make us have to do more, but $5 is what we traditionally do. But it allows you to go into a Dunkin' Donuts legitimately and get a cup of coffee and sit down without anyone hassling you because you're there and also use a bathroom. So this little card is like a ticket to warmth, some food, and a chance to go to the bathroom. And it's like gold. And who would have thought? So there are little things you can do that are not, you know, you know, not controversial and that people will adore you for. And they, if you say hello to them and say, I'm sorry, I don't have any money, they are, they will almost always be grateful for that. So I'm with you on that. I think we just all have to realize that these are folks who are just like us and just are looking to be acknowledged the way we would anyone else walking down the street. Through the years, I'm sure you've seen a lot of death and a lot of life and life and death on that cutting edge. Has it heightened your own awareness of your own mortality? And how do you contemplate that? You know, you have a timestamp. We all do. Do you think about it much or are you like the nurse? You're too busy to think about it. Um, <laughs> I want to say yes and yes to this. Uh, so first of all, um, it is appalling how uh, premature mortality affects the populations, people living in shelters, but particularly those who live on the streets. So, you know, in little studies that we've done, not little big studies we've done, um, you can find throughout the world, somebody living in a shelter is gonna be on average about four times more likely to die than someone the same age in that city. If you're living on the streets, at least the streets of Boston, which is when we have the most, it's about 10 to 12 times that. So death is ubiquitous. It's, um, you know, often unexpected, um, very frequently. And, you know, aside from drug overdoses, the most frequent cause of death is cancer, heart disease, the things that we should be doing better at preventing and diagnosing early. So death has been um, one of the hardest things for us, certainly as a team caring for homeless people to cope with. Um, and uh, now that I have been, we, we really emphasize, by the way, I should have said this before, but we were put together by a group of homeless people who decided with Mayor Flynn back in 1984 and 85, how they wanted to be served. And the most important thing they they said was they wanted continuity of care. So they wanted their own doctor, but not a volunteer, someone who would be with them all the time, just like you and I would want. Um, and um, and in, in doing that, I started to realize there was beauty in that because you don't understand people, you know, for the first three or four times you see them, especially if it's on the streets or on the van. But over time, you get to know them and they get to know you. And then you can start doing some pretty effective primary and preventive care. Um, so I have gotten inordinately attached to these people I see day and night. We see them on the street during the day, see them in the van at night, see them in our clinic. At, you know, we have clinics at Mass Journal and Boston Medical Center. We're also were required by the folks we serve to stay part of the hospital. So when they get admitted to the hospital, we can be involved in their care. And as every homeless person has pointed out to me um, and our team, when they're sick and frightened and feeling um, stigmatized in the hospital, there is nothing they want more than a visit from their own doctor or their own nurse, their own team. So all of that has been the privilege for us. So we provide the continuity right through the system. But counter to that is as we've gotten to know these people and they die, it's shattering for us because we have spent so much time and gotten to know their, so much like I, I point out, much like what my family doctor used to do when I was growing up. You know, the family doctor had delivered my mom, you know, delivered me, knew everything about our family, used to come over and visit us when we were sick, um, often had dinner with us. So we'd see them at the beach or something like that. So they were part of our lives. 
And that continuity, the perspective of our doctor happened to be a he, was that he understood our family. He knew what the dynamics were. And we've had this kind of interesting privilege to be like old time country doctors working in a very inner city urban setting. And I think that kind of summarizes it all for me about what has been so important. Now, as I get to be this age, most of the people I've known for 20 and 30 and now 35 years are dead. And um, that's been really hard to me, for me to cope with. So it clearly lets me, you know, dwell on the fact, you know, that that's coming my way as well. You know, we're all, we're all broken and all going through things and things happen. Suddenly there are cliffs we fall off. So I have a much heightened, maybe too heightened now, sense of my own vulnerability and mortality. Um, I'd like to get rid of that because I'd like to think I'm going to live forever. Well, you are, but just not maybe as Jim. Thank you. <laughs> Don't be so attached to the shape of your carbon. Carbon's not you. That's a message from uh, the the home office, not me. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, any inspirational words for people that uh, somehow might have found this, that are homeless on the verge of homelessness or having a tough time just in general, living one moment to the next, got a bad break, and through the grace of God came and found us here today. We appreciate you. If you and I were in the room with them and I said, don't look at me, Jim, what what would you say? Well, you know, I've been, uh, I had a interesting email correspondence with um, Dr. Greg Frischioni at MGH yesterday. And we were talking about, I had studied for a very short time with Hannah Arendt back many years ago at, when she was in the new school. Um, and he was talking about one of, one of the books she wrote about lying and politics, but that was a side. But he, um, he put in, a, in one, one sort of one sentence, something that caught me off guard. He's, he was interpreting the lives we were leading in this as um, trying to address separation by finding attachment. And so he, I would say what we have done, you know, you know, some inadvertently or not by all of our racism and our, you know, income inequality and all of the, all the laws that have made it really difficult for poor people to do, we have really separated them from ourselves. And if and people who are living on the streets and in the shelters are, I think, almost by definition, the most outcast and separated of our population. I think one way to look at what our jobs are, and I don't say this just as a doctor, but it's a job as everybody, is to figure out how do we address that separation and find ways for them to reattach or to attach for the first time. And I think that's, I think if people keep in mind that these are folks who just, you know, didn't get the break they needed, and it's probably up to us to find ways to welcome them back into the fold to be part of all of us. And not to get too out there or whatever, but isn't that the essence of Jesus's teachings? Uh, yes, I think so. I think there are a few very simple things in, in the gospel that echo things in many other religions where, you know, it's, you know, it's, our, you know, welcoming and caring for, those, for others is what makes us all whole. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. 
So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.